You are listening to the podcast for Nerdy Christians, where faith meets fandom. Welcome to the show for progressive followers of Jesus who also happen to love Hogwarts, Hobbits, and doing this all day. This is Season 5, Episode 3, Captain America, Made Perfect in Weakness. I'm Adam Thomas, and I'm, as always, very happy to be sitting across the internet from Carrie Combs. Hey, Carrie. Hey, Adam. Happy podcast day. It, podcast day it comes every other week. It's a, it's a holiday mm-hmm. that keeps on giving. Today we are talking about Captain America. We had a reason to revisit an oldie but goodie. An oldie uh, of literally the oldest uh, Marvel movie as in like when it came, not when it came out in theaters, but when it is set in history. Uh, Captain America, the first Avenger, which was one of the phase one um, Marvel movies. Uh, It came out right before the Avengers. Uh, So it was the it was the last of the of the phase one Marvel movies before the first Avengers film. Uh, And it's a movie I really, really like, and I'm really excited to be talking about it today. We're going to mostly talk about the first hour of the movie as well before uh, Steve gets all buff. Um. (laughs) (laughs) When they were working that CGI really hard to make... You know, I, th- it, I think, it, I think it works. Chris Evans looked weak. <laughs> it works it does. pretty it's well. Almost, it's, it, it, that's how, the first movie I ever saw him in, so I didn't expect... I'm not used to seeing him buff. That was like, oh, this is what he looks like. And then yeah. no. now I now it looks strange. But at the time yeah. I just thought this is a guy. Yep. Yeah. It's 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 really it's really well done. Um and there's this moment when he co- when he comes out of the the, the chamber all buff, mm-hmm. there's this great moment where Haley Atwell that plays Peggy Carter, like <laughs> like touches his peck, like very, very gently and then it's just too, hilarious. It's just so funny. <laughs> Seeing is barely believing. Indeed. You gotta, you gotta reach out it's and touch. So great. Anyway, why don't you give us our scripture quote? I would be honored to. Today's scripture quote is from the second letter to the Corinthians, chapter twelve. To keep me from being too elated, a thorn was giving me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I appealed to the Lord about this, that it would leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. So I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities for the sake of Christ. For whenever I am weak, then I am strong." And our quotation from Nerd Cannon comes from Captain America, the first Avenger, where Dr. Erskine, played by the wonderful Stanley Tucci, is talking to Steve before the procedure, and he says, The serum amplifies everything that is inside, so good becomes great, bad becomes worse. This is why you were chosen, because the strong man who has known power all his life may lose respect for that power. But a weak man knows the value of strength and knows compassion. This movie begins with the bad guy. Red Skull, well, it actually begins with them finding Cap's shield in the, in the ice. But the, 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 first main se- the first main scene of this film is Red Skull finding the Tesseract. And we see in this opening scene the Red Skull's desire for power at any cost. So right away, we have the foil for our main character. The protagonist and antagonist in this film are very much opposites. Uh, Even though they have both undergone a similar procedure, we definitely see that the Red Skull, uh, in that very Nazi, uh, fascist, uh, Aryan superiority, this perfect, this 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 perfection of of humanity idea that uh, was so uh, horribly deployed during World War II, we see it used in this film with Red Skull, and so it makes sense that Steve is the foil to that power dynamic. Right. So the film opens with that scene of Elrond going to steal the magic box Elrond, from. Yeah. From Argus Filch oh, no, in Norway. Argus Filch. You're right. It is oh, Argus yeah. Filch. All right. So Red Skull and his not his Hydra cronies, which is one of the divisions of the Nazis in Marvel Cinematic and 
probably comic universe, I would imagine. And he's it shows from the beginning. We don't know anything about this character. We don't know what's below the Hugo Weaving flesh mask. We don't know what has happened to him, but we do know that he's willing to obtain power at any cost. And he's wily. He's smart. In that opening scene, looking for the Tesseract, he opens up that tomb and is like, follow, you know, finds a this glowing box and realizes it's obviously not there. That's a, a disguise. And he tries to get information from the guy that is played by the same guy who is Argus Filch in Harry Potter movies at all costs. He's threatening to destroy the village where presumably this man has family or children or neighbors at least. And we see that he will deploy violence though you know he's like a he's like a nazi on steroids extra yeah he's he's an even he's a not he's more nazi than the nazis yeah which is saying a lot because with with the morality in this film being very binary with good versus evil um and then as we'll explore in this podcast selflessness versus selfishness red skull destroys the town anyway Remember, and they say later that he made an unlawful incur- or an unsanctioned incursion into Norway to, to get this thing, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So we know he's already off the rails. Um, uh, while the Fuhrer is in the desert digging up trinkets, right? <laughs> which is Indiana Jones, well, and- which is great. Okay. I mean, it actually happened. That did actually happen. Okay. Yeah, that did actually happen in history. history Yeah. I mean, but then I like like to imagine that Indiana Jones actually happened. In the same universe well, as the Marvel Cinematic? No, in real life. I like, oh. I like to imagine. <laughs> oh. <laughs> anyway, so we cut to Steve. Uh, and, and for the whole first hour of this film, before we, we get the procedure, he's always shot like in the lower half of the frame. Like, mm-hmm. like the, the camera is almost like not positioned right with him in the middle of the frame because there's always right. other people that are taller than him in the mm-hmm. in the shot and i wrote down the list of his health issues oh it's extensive because how many times is it like his seventh time trying to the ones fifth? yeah when he when he finally meets dr erskine it's his sixth time because they say that he's had five okay. he's had five failures uh so he has asthma he's had scarlet fever rheumatic fever sinusitis chronic or frequent colds high blood pressure palpitations or pounding of the heart easy fit fatigability, uh, heart trouble, he, nervous trouble of any sort, has had household contact with tuberculosis, and a parent sibling with diabetes and cancer. So that's all of the reasons that Steve is going to get rejected from the army. Not, I mean, they would have, they told them he would have rejected him for the asthma alone, mm-hmm. but. The doctor who stamps his form 4F, which is the rejection, uh, says, I'm saving your life, which is exactly the opposite thing Steve wants to hear. He's not concerned about his life. And we learn that, that he's willing to put himself in harm's way, almost to the point of bullheadedness, um, by the number of times that he has gotten beaten up for standing up for himself or for someone else or to a bully. So there's that scene where they're all sitting in the in the movie theater mm-hmm. watching the newsreel slash propaganda reel before the film starts and that other guy's mouthing off and he's... And Steve's trying to get him to be quiet and respect this respect the space, man. Mm-hmm. Doesn't say it like that because it's 1942. Um, but also show respect for the people who are serving. Mm-hmm. All the able-bodied yes. soldiers who are serving in World War II. I caught that and, and too. He's not. Every able-bodied young man is lining up to serve his country. Yeah. Uh, together with the Allies, we'll face any threat, no matter the size. So there, the 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 newsreel is very much helping to prime us for the content of this film. Uh, and then Steve says, "There are men." Uh, says this to to Bucky. There are men laying down their lives. I got no right to do any less than them. That's what you don't understand. This isn't about me. So while we may see that kind of stubbornness, while he's going to stand up and and keep, you know, I can do this all day, right? Um, he sees his desire to serve as a, a element of selflessness. This isn't about my self-esteem. This is about my desire to be with you, to be part of this group that's doing the right thing. And not that Bucky is meant to be 
uh, as big of a foil as Red Skull. But when he enlists and he's being deployed the next day, he shows up on this double date in full uniform and does experience some of the benefits of being one of our brave boys going off to war. These women are, are fawning over him. They, it's sort of implied that they that he is definitely the more socially adept of the two. He's had better luck with dating and women in the past. So it's not just the uniform. Um but there's definitely that he Bucky's got a shine to him that shows he's excited about what he's doing. I believe he believes in what he's doing. And he's also experiencing some of the benefits. Whereas the first time we see Steve reaping the benefits of his um, heroism is very awkward and he's not sure what to do with it. He's not as easily accepting of it because he's just doing it for the reasons for the right reasons. He's just doing it, not about himself, not to be a hero, but because he knows it needs to be done. Can I just do a little a little aside about Bucky Barnes? Okay, so I think Sebastian Stan can wear the heck out of that uniform. I think he looks great. And he in I mean, and he's he's got the hat on and the jaunty angle, right? The and and then he's dating uh Clara from Doctor Who. Here we are in 1943, and it is the conversation between Bucky and Steve that Stanley Tucci's character, Dr. Eskin, overhears. Erskine? Erskine. I'm just going to call him Dr. Stanley Tucci. Dr. Stanley Tucci overhears that makes him think, hey, this guy is a good candidate for my program. Yeah. And and he says, do you want to kill Nazis? And Steve says, I don't want to kill anyone. I don't like bullies. I don't care where they're from. So right there, mm. we see Steve's ethos. And one of the things I love about Captain America is that, again, his weapon of ch- weapon is a shield, which, yeah, he throws at people and knocks them out. But a shield is a defensive weapon. You know what How I mean? How have I never thought of this? <laughs> he doesn't carry anything else. No, I mean, he does have a gun in a couple scenes in this movie okay. when he's doing yeah. some of the, the war stuff. And he throws a grenade a couple of times. But if you watch him for the rest of... I he might pick up a gun like one other time in the next twenty movies. Holy moly! Yeah, um, and then he has, of course, he has an Endgame. We'll get to it at the end. He has mm-hmm, Thor's mm-hmm. hammer at the end, which is just awesome. But uh, anyway, so he says, "I don't want to kill anyone." So he actually has this. Uh, he understands that the the his goal is not just indiscriminate killing. It is mm-hmm. standing up to this aggressor, which if you look at the history of what happened in the late 1930s, um, there's that concept of appeasement, which was, well, mm-hmm. Hitler doesn't really mean what he's talking about. We're just, yeah, you can you can have you can have a little bit of Poland and Czechoslovakia, but that's it. No more. You, you can't have any more. Um, and then, of course, what, what happens is then conquers most of Europe. Um and, and so what Steve is saying here is, is I don't, you know, I'm going to stand up for what's right. It's not about killing. It's about standing up for what's, for what's right. And then, of course, that's when Erskine says, there are already so many big men fighting this war. Maybe what we need now is the little guy, huh? Um, and that's where we go. We get to Camp Lehigh. And you appreciate in the beginning of this film that, you know, he he's a little guy, but he is good of heart. That is what Erskine hears and is convinced to take him into the project. Um, he doesn't want the glory. He doesn't want to just kill. He doesn't want to go and fight for the excitement or the or anything else besides just knowing that it is right. And that good heart is what the serum kind of amplifies. Right, right. So, and we're as we move towards the the procedure, we have the great uh, uh, montage and scenes at at Camp Lehigh, uh, where Love we get a good yeah, we get we get Colonel Tommy Lee Jones, who every time he says anything <laughs> in this movie, I start laughing because he just delivers his lines so well. Chewing the scenery, <laughs> he, he, just, is. he just is. So, he's so there. He's so. Well, I'm not gonna kiss you, you know. <laughs> uh, so he, he's his first line is, we are going to win this war because we have the best men and the camera cuts to Steve. And of course, Tommy Lee Jones gives kind of a huh look. But it's that great kind of irony where this is the best guy right here. This this is the one that we're we're putting the camera on. And he'll have to be convinced of it throughout the rest of the film. He's initially very doubtful. Right. And so during this scene, we see all of the ways that Steve is different from the other uh, soldiers, he's reading while they horseplay, uh, in in uh, in, and it's like military tactics books too. Uh, he doesn't join the scrum trying to get the flag. 
you know, they're all jumping at each other trying to climb the climb this flagpole. And he waits until he leaves, walks up, pulls the pin and, and grabs the, the flag, which shows kind of his patience and his ingenuity. Um, and, and so we just see how he's different and not just because he's small. Um, but we, what we learn with the reason Dr. Erskine wants him, and this was our nerd quote is because he's been dealt this hand of, of being small and sick and, and, uh, not really wanted. Um, he has had to develop traits different from the traits that these quote unquote big guys have. These big guys are have had power their whole lives that they don't even understand what a gift it is and a gift and a tool to be used in all the right ways. Steve has had to work for everything. He has to get around the fact that he's not full of physical strength by, like you said, being patient, being smart, um, being willing to cooperate. And it's really in that scene with the grenade where you where we start to see exactly how much he is how much his inner heart is worth mm-hmm. yeah so just talk talk about the grenade scene for a second there for folks that maybe haven't seen this film in a while this is the only scene i could remember from the film um so i'm happy to re- repeat it um is because erskine and dr tommy sorry dr T- stanley tucci and dr tommy lee jones <laughs> colonel dr T- dr stanley tucci and colonel tommy lee jones <laughs> all right whatever they're having a conversation about Again, which of these guys they're going to pick for their experiment to give the serum um, and to try to make this like new class of super soldiers, essentially. And Colonel Tommy Lee Jones wants to pick this big guy, Hodge, just kind of like meathead because he's he's strong and he's fast. Um, But we get again, we get that word bully. Erskine says that this, you know, that guy's a bully. Instead, he wants to pick Steve, who is in the moment in the scene struggling and to even keep up. He's not able to do all the push-ups he's supposed to be doing. And Colonel Tommy Lee Jones says, you don't win wars with niceness, doctor. You win wars with guts. And he takes a grenade off of the truck next to them and throws it onto the field, shouting, grenade. Suddenly, like all of these big, powerful guys jump away. Steve throws himself on it, curls up in a ball, shielding the others with his tiny body. Uh, Peggy comes up too, and yeah, I, I guess I, I think she. Stop I think it. she knows that it's not a real grenade. She knows that yeah. it's okay. So it's it's obviously not a real grenade, but none of the soldiers know that. And he very deliberately. It's amazingly acted. He's like, go away. And he's he's. You see him trembling, but clutching his body around it, and that's. What shows he's willing to, you know, to sacrifice himself for others to protect them, whereas they their first instinct is to run away. His is to jump into danger to protect them with all he's got, even if it's not as much as they have. Yeah. And and I like the fact that it's the, the grenade, which is a very small item. He's able to shield it with his body. Hmm. Again, it's he's being a shield. Mm-hmm. Right there, you know, the whole Captain America has a shield thing and is a shield. Uh, it, it's it's there. It's going to keep coming back. <laughs> uh, so then we move to the conversation uh, between Erskine and Steve uh, before the procedure where... where with the schnapps. With the schnapps, which... The part, the part where he's like, what, you, you can't drink. You've got the procedure tomorrow. And he's, he's like, he pours it into his own cup. He's like, well, I don't have a procedure, right? I don't have a procedure. It's so funny. It's so good. So, so Steve oh, asks... Dr. Stanley Tucci. Steve asks, why me? And I love the next line. And it's actually, this is an incredibly mm. important line for our modern American society right now. Um, Erskine says, so many people forget that the first country the Nazis invaded was their own. You know, after the last war, my people struggled. They felt weak. They felt small. And this is because of the absolutely punitive treaties that happened after World War One that basically made Germany unable to exist uh, in any kind of way that was helpful for its people. Uh, They felt small, they felt weak. And then Hitler comes along with the marching and the big show and the flags. And he says, he says, you will make us strong to, to, to Erskine uh, and to Schmidt because they were partners at that point. And that's when Schmidt sees himself as the superior man. And that's when he starts talking about the serum amplifying everything that is inside you. And we'll go ahead and read that quotation one more time, even though we said it earlier, because this is the, this is the heart of the movie right here is this quotation. Uh, Dr. Stanley Tucci says, the serum amplifies everything that is inside. So good becomes great, bad becomes worse. 
This is why you were chosen, stock talking to Steve, because the strong man who has known power all of his life may lose respect for that power, but a weak man knows the value of strength and knows compassion. And then the next line, he continues saying, whatever happens tomorrow, you must promise me one thing. You will stay who you are, not a perfect soldier, but a good man. Yeah, and he and he thinks that Steve he he picks Steve because he does not believe that Steve is going to change and allow this this physical power that he is about to have to override who he is at his core. And up up to his dying breaths and one of the last things he does as he's dying is taps his chest to remind Steve that it's his heart. The reason why he was chosen in the moment that he comes into this power, that it's his good heart that he wants, that he has been chosen for. And that that's knowing that the serum has affected Red Skull, uh, Schmidt, and Captain America, Steve Rogers, just shows these two divergent paths. I mean, the serum wasn't quite perfected when it was used on Schmidt, so it kind of screws him up for other ways, but it also amplifies what was already in his heart, which is desire for power, which is that lack of compassion. And I love that Erskine says the strength, you know, you appreciate strength as a weak person, but you also have compassion so that when he comes into his strength, he gets physical power, but he still has compassion, caring, bravery, all of the traits that he developed earlier in his life. And had to develop really because he was unable he would have been unable to uh own that toxic masculinity because he just wasn't the right shape literally the right shape to to have it um now we should probably just have a slight corrective here in that the scene on the way to the procedure steve shows his blind spot as far as women's rights are concerned <laughs> when he's yes, like right, you're a yeah. dame you know what is a dame in the army doing in the army which i'm really glad they actually have that scene in the film because mm. it shows that yeah he's he is a selfless guy he has a great integrity and compassion and he still has some of the blind spots that being a white man in society are gonna give you and then again when when peggy's trying to get all the guys to do push-ups she's saying come on ladies come on girls and that is upsetting but so okay it's part of the yeah so so there are still some blind spots which we, we shouldn't ignore um but overall what we're talking about here is this and m- maybe we can move it a little bit to our to our scripture quotation and, and talking mm-hmm. a little bit maybe about jesus too and there's a few more things i want to mention in the movie but that's once he becomes you know a uh, big buff guy um the movie takes a takes another turn and becomes a war movie basically um Mm -hmm. but uh the idea that we have from our quotation from from second corinthians the idea of power being made perfect in weakness is really a a really challenging concept when you grow Mm -hmm. up in a society that appreciates power for power and when we're talking about power here we're talking about power over not right. not 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 the good kind of power of of feeling like you can do something or a power with uh, sharing of power. We're talking about a power over the dominate domination power, really. Yeah. Um, and so Paul hears the Lord say to him, "My grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness." In other words, if you are so concerned with power for the sake of domination you will never be able to access the kind of power that is present for those who believe in a God of, of justice and kindness and love. It, mm-hmm. it is only when you, uh, you will only be able to come to those, to that understanding of God from a place of weakness, uh, from a place of vulnerability. And we see this in the life of Jesus by the fact that he was he was born into mixed privileges. We were both Adam and I were spent this past weekend at a wonderful conference with Dr. Christina Cleveland, um, who's written a number of books. Most recently, God is a Black Woman. But her one of her explorations and passions as a scholar is to look at this hermeneutic of what's it called? Kenosis. Kenosis. Well, those are, there's two words that we should probably explain, kenosis and hermeneutic. Right. Reading, reading the Bible through the concept of Jesus's self-emptying, that at his core, he is, he self-empties himself. And we hear this in a lot of the ways that Jesus talked about in, you know, the, the, the song of the servant that hearkens 
that is in Song of Isaiah, came not to serve, but to be served. Wait, (laughs) came not to be served, but to serve, taking on the form of a servant. And in his life, he was born into mixed privileges. He was a man of the family, had a small business, um, but he was also a, a, you know, religious minority in a very powerful empire and was experienced time as a refugee after his birth. And throughout his life, he has power, he has position, he has a following, but he uses his power in ways to shield others, to protect others, and ultimately to create a, a new system that rejects the the harmful powers of empire allowing his power to flow from him into those who have never experienced any type of 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 power before um and dr cleveland at the training that carrie and i went to spoke about the story of the woman who has the bleed for 12 years and how it specifically says in the gospel that that Jesus feels the power go out of go out from him. Uh, and then this woman is able to then share her whole truth of of her experience. This woman who has probably never been listened to before. And Jesus stands there as well as the uh, important figure of Jairus, the official, the the religious official, uh, listens to her story. Uh, and so we if you read the gospel through this, uh, hermeneutic of kenosis, uh, that self-emptying, uh, we see Jesus do this over and over again, uh, taking his own power that he has and flowing it to people who have never experienced any, the, the type of liberation that, that you, that you receive when you are treated as an equal and not put on a pedestal, just put on equal footing. And I like connecting this to Captain America because we see that Steve is not without Steve still has some some power. We keep using the word power. Steve still has some privileges, might be some gifts, gifts, privileges. Um, He has a place, and he, regardless of what makeup he has, he's trying to use all of it for the protection of others. And when he receives this physical strength, this you know incredible metabolism, ability to jump super far, great pecs, his strength. Great pecs, great other, other, I know. All right, never mind. Great pecs. He, he just sees it as another tool. He doesn't let it own him. He doesn't let it define him. He's still this, as Bucky will say, just like a guy from Brooklyn who just now has another tool in his tool belt that he will use to serve others. So that you just mentioned Bucky here. And I love that Bucky says that he's following the kid from Brooklyn. Not Captain America, the kid from Brooklyn. Bucky still sees in Steve the person he has always been. And then at the very end, we see that Peggy has kept a picture of Steve from before his transformation. The image that she looks at in the fo- in the folder at the very end of the film is from before he changes. And if you watch Endgame closely... When Steve goes like back to the nineteen seventy, which I've done many times, uh, when, <laughs> it's not even that close. He holds the picture; you see it. But um, Steve, when he goes back to the nineteen seventies with Iron Man, um, he he gets he goes to Peggy's office, and she she has framed that picture of oh, of him no. from before his transformation. So both Bucky and Peggy hold on to that image of Steve from before. Because that's still who he is. And Red Skull even says to Steve, what made you so special? And Steve says, nothing. I'm just a kid from Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. So Steve also continues to hold on to that person he's always been. Uh, We're talking about his physical transformation. Uh, I really like when he's chasing after the the guy, by the way, who plays Thor and Oakenshield in the uh, Hobbit movies. Uh, <laughs> this is a very busy film. Connections um, for fantasy properties. Uh, he starts running, and he he doesn't doesn't know his body yet, and he crashes into that bridal store. <laughs> he crashes oh, to the window yeah. of the bridal store, <laughs> and and then he, and, and then he picks up. He keeps running. He's going. He's going. He's going. He's like, oh, I can do this. Um, but he doesn't actually look at himself and like check out what he looks like until he's already caught the guy. That his but he is totally focused on on catching the guy who shot Erskine and and, and uh, you know tried to steal yep. the the serum, um, and I, I'll just put in a little plug for the kid who er, throws into the water and is like I can swim. 
I love that part because, again, I forgot this movie. And yeah. so, like, it really is fooling you to think he's oh, yeah. going to have to jump in. And it's like, don't worry yeah. about it. Who is he going to have to? He's going to have to save the kid or is he going to go in the water to get the No, I can swim. Like, I'm fine. <laughs> go I get him. Really I watched, I rewound that part like four times. But so after after he receives his power, they the, they decide to use him by selling more bonds, by being a symbol. And you can tell that he, although he gets more comfortable with it, when he finally goes overseas and is entertaining the soldiers, they're not having it. It's only when he rescues the prisoners of war that he's able to kind of gain the respect of the soldiers by, again, using this power, not just as a symbol, but to literally place himself in harm's way in order to get them out of their imprisonment. Let's uh, move away from Captain America, the first Avenger, and just do a quick survey of, of Cap through through the rest of the films, because there's that please, wonderful... Please, please, you do that, because yeah, okay. I don't know it. <laughs> there's that wonderful scene in um, Avengers Age of Ultron, where uh, they've finished having this party, and they're all sitting around having a beer, and they all decide to try to lift up Thor's hammer. And everybody, all of the men try it. Uh, uh, Natasha Romanoff is like, I don't need to prove anything. I don't, I'm not going to try to lift that thing. But all the men try to lift it up. And Steve's like, okay, okay, I'll try, I'll try. And he he nudges it like a millimeter. And you and the camera flashes to Thor, who's like, big eyes. Like, what the heck? <laughs> Somebody actually was able to... Now, if you, if you watch the not very good Thor movies, there are times when Thor isn't able to lift up the hammer because he is not worthy of the, the power of Mjolnir at that point. Um, but then, then we move all the way through, and then we get to Endgame, and we, we have that wonderful, wonderful moment at the end of Endgame when he picks up Thor's hammer. And Thor's, Thor says, I knew it. And and we know that Cap is worthy. And why is Cap worthy? It's not because he has big muscles. Because there's a lot of people that have big muscles. He's worthy because he is still the kid from Brooklyn who is a man of integrity and compassion and self-sacrifice. This time on the podcast, we're reading the chapter Port Coriol from The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet by Becky Chambers. Here's a quick recap. It's a shopping chapter, and the GC is picking up the tab. The crew gets a day groundside at the bustling Port Coriol, where Rosemary thinks she is going to get mugged any minute. But the rest of the crew feel right at home, even the non-human ones who have to wear breathing masks because of the plethora of pungent odors. Good thing human noses are so bad at smelling. Rosemary and Sissix are on kizzy-wrangling duty as the hyperactive comp tech leads them around on a sundries collection run. They bump into some extremist, guyist missionaries, which prompts the harrowing story of Jenks's mother's escape from a survivalist clan back on Earth. Down in the caves, Jenks meets up with an old friend and tech wizard named Pepper, who, by the by, is the main character of the next book in the series. In a hush-hush manner, Jenks asks her about body kits, a highly illegal and ethically ambiguous bit of tech. Back to Kizzy, who buys some expensive soap and hopes Rosemary will consent to the GC expense account purchasing it. Rosemary feels awful about it, but she holds her ground and says no. In the typically diplomatic Andrisk way, Sissix interprets for Kizzy that Rosemary has an important job just like everyone else, and sometimes she'll need to inconvenience the crew to keep them in line with GC expectations. Rosemary and Kizzy then watch Sissix comfort a lonely Andrisk elder, after which they bestow on each other feathers from their own heads. Oh, one more thing. Not everyone is shopping. Right after landing Moonside, Ashby receives a message from Pei, his secret Aluan lover. They meet clandestinely in a hotel in order to avoid prying eyes that might report their taboo relationship to Aluan authorities. Such a thing would most likely end Pei's career and get her exiled from her family. Pei has a new scar, a souvenir from a warlike Rosk who was genetically bred for battle. Ashby is glad the Rosk is dead because it means Pei still lives, but such a thought bothers his non-violent ethos. For her part, Pei warns Ashby about heading into Torami space. They are just as bellicose as the Rosk, and even more unpredictable. I love this chapter, and I'm 
I was nervous about just doing one chapter of the book club, but hearing you summarize it and having reread it a couple times, there's a lot packed into this one shopping trip. And I love that it starts off from Ashby's perspective, talking about this very sensory, sensorially overwhelming place. And then him being such the guy that he is, is like, how could you not love a place like that? Like, I imagine a lot of people wouldn't like that. We then hear Rosemary being like, didn't I hear a story about someone who had their arm amputated at Port Coriol? Didn't I hear about how around here, like people with face tattoos are going to mug me? Um, the complete difference between an Exodin who's used to operating in multicultural, multi-species spaces, and then our delightfully sheltered little Martian who is probably thinking through all of the horror stories she's heard about ports like Port Coriol. Becky Chambers does a good job of narrating the different levels of <clears throat> comfort within Port Coriol. And the actions of the characters really do a wonderful job showing who they are. Jenks listening to the non-sentient AI finish its speech just to be polite and give it the benefit of the doubt. This is <laughs> this is the guy who's in love with the AI on board the Wayfarer. And his love for, lo for Lovey, for Lovelace, makes him kinder to other computers. Mm. Compassion. Yeah, he's got this compassion. Then we meet... The Gaiest Missionaries. So let's talk about this a little bit here. It's rough. Yeah. Um, the missionaries here are very much right out of central casting for the uh, pushy Christian proselyte mm -hmm. might be the better word mm -hmm. than missionary here. Somebody who's proselytizer. Proselytizing. They don't. They say don't. Don't make eye contact. We don't. We don't. But but who who is this guy as missionary? We don't even know because the guy's wearing a full spacesuit. Yeah, which will be jettisoned into space after use, not even recycled or reused and sanitized. Completely thrown away. Yeah, the other humans <laughs> that he's talking to are walking around like normal. But the yeah. only, the literal only reason he's wearing a spacesuit is that so he doesn't have to breathe the same air as other species, or or get their dirt on his on his body. It's it's absolute purism, right? Like purism, purity. He's so afraid of anything being contaminated. Well, as as I think it's Rosemary's perspective, one of the, whoever's narrating this part kind of in the third person will point out the hypocrisy of the fact that Gaius are able to survive at all and have a planet at all is because of the influence of other species basically taking us on, we humans on as a pet project. And I like that Sissix gently kind of, and prote while protecting herself and not letting herself be offended or hurt by this interaction, kind of goads him into coming out as they say, come out swinging with the speciesist um, sentiment that is at the, the heart of a lot of guyists who, who who frequent the spaceports. They all they they talk a good game about the wonders of Earth and like the need for the human souls to return to Earth, but really they are separatist speciesist, speciesist and essentially xenophobic. They are afraid that other species will disrupt, dirty their own species. And so Sissix kind of gently pushes at him in order to expose the layers below this happy, clappy kind of facade. Um, he's annoyed that Sissix is interested in the orchid. His focus yeah. is on Rosemary and Kizzy, who are who are human. You know, so these are this is these are the people I want to talk to. Uh, and that leads into the story of Jenks's mother, Mala, um, who. Interestingly enough, this book written before COVID, uh, there's a lot here about vaccination <laughs> in this uh -huh. section where um, the Gaiists on Earth, uh, they are anti-vaxxers, basically, um, and don't they're very much a uh, we want to live as, quote unquote, primally as possible to, to the point uh, and and also to, to kind of bow to genetic evolution survival of the fittest in the way in survival of the fittest in the way that it's misused most often not not really Darwin's idea but kind of how we tend to use it which is the most powerful will always sir will always get ahead yeah that goes back to hey, our captain speaking back to Captain, <laughs> captain America. America yeah the physical so strength Jenks was going to be would have been left 
out in the elements to die because of his stature. As Kizzy would sum it up, oh, hey, this one's kind of weird. Better to leave it behind to weed out the bad genes. And she's like so stupid. She's so mad she crushes her algae puffs, which for her is a great display of emotion. I appreciate in science fiction, the characters don't know anything different than their own world. Um, and yet we reading it are able to compare it to our own. And so when Kizzy says how Mala having, you know, giving birth in the wild, she almost died in childbirth. She says, who dies in childbirth? Effing archaic. And that, you know, is, is someone who lives in a society where people who are giving birth are frequently, our lives are in danger and a lot of people do die in childbirth. That hits home in a way that's, this is a nice sounding future if that's not the, if that's not so common. And then talking about doctors in this world, when, when Mala escapes and makes it to the ring of, around Earth, which is helping to rehabilitate the planet um, and built by philanthropic Aluans and Andrisks, <laughs> they point out, um, she gets the doctors to say that Jenks is healthy, even though he's small of stature. That in a society that is based on genetic therapy, that that they will gene tweak, you know, to make everybody the right, the quote unquote right height. Mm-hmm. Mala says, no, my son is who he is. This is this is him. There's no quality of life problem with him, as, as Kizzy says, you know, that he'd be happy at any size and that Mala was just sick of people telling her that there was something wrong with her kid, which as someone coming from survivalist into the hands of, you know, more technologically advanced or technologically embracing people, he's just because you can change his size doesn't mean that you should. And he is perfectly fine on his own, the way that he is. Although we learn in this chapter, when he goes down to the caves, he does enjoy walking around in a place where his stature doesn't make him stick out. When he's among the modders who are willing to amputate parts of their bodies in order to tweak them in the ways that they want, suddenly being a little being shorter doesn't stick out so much. Yeah, yeah. It is interesting, though, that the, both the guyists and the doctors on the ring, as far apart as they are ideologically, come to the same conclusion, which is that this kid is wrong. And the, mo- the his mother stands firm and says, no, he is who he is. And that is right. And that's a great you know, reminder for we have a lot. We have a, a society that is ableist in so many ways and thinking that um, being, quote, of sound body, of of able body, as we heard in Captain America, is just inherently better. And everyone should want that um, is is ableist. And this is a reminder of. Here's a character who has a different stature and he is content and well and healthy and has quality of life and he doesn't need to be changed. I remember uh, hearing a sermon once. This is years and years ago, but I still remember it really clearly. Um, The preacher was talking about uh, disabilities in, in this, in this same space and says something to the effect of, um, you know, those of you who wear glasses, can you imagine growing up in a society where you were not able to have your vision corrected. I have really bad vision. <laughs> what what if I weren't able to wear contacts or put on glasses? Like I wouldn't be able to hunt. I wouldn't be I mean mm-hmm. I couldn't catch a baseball without my glasses on. No, you I know. still can't catch a baseball with okay, my well. glasses on. <laughs> but I mean I'm not trying Got to it. compare that to much more se- severe disabilities, but just to put myself in that mindset for just a moment and going I I am I have never I've always taken for granted my uh able-bodiedness that the, the way that the world tells me to to that I should be. And the survivalists would have said that, you know, you would have gotten weeded out of the gene pool and part of what, you know, accepting people who use glasses or any number of human inventions to help us survive in this world to make us thrive is just is another part of, I would say, evolution. We've developed these things to make us happier, healthier. Um, I got really mad. I, I do a healing service once a week and we're using Book of Occasional Services, Public Service of Healing. And they have a prayer that says, grant your healing grace to all who are sick, injured, or disabled, that they may be made whole. That is an ableist sentiment right there, that disabled people are not whole. There might not be healing available and it might, or change available, or there might be, but you might be fine the way you are. Um, 
so we have we have a lot of learning to do in that and I appreciate the perspective that Jenks gives us. I really want to talk about Sissix and the quote unquote weird Andrisk because I think it I think it actually fits it fits with what we were just talking about. That in Sissix's culture, the Andrus purportedly the quote unquote diplomatic species. Um, now it's always it's always not a great idea to put particular um, descriptors on an entire culture, but that's that's what happens in this uh, in, in in here. Um, there's this weird elder um, that not every Andrisk has the social skills that they would expect within their society, and that's the way that this disability uh, um, manifests in this particular Andrisk and has, and she has been shunned because of it. Right. And so Sissix essentially snuggling with her for half an hour, which is awfully intimate from a human standard. But for Sissix is just including this woman in the kind of wider species network that Sissix enjoys as an Andrisk who is not ostracized. Yeah. And then at the end of that, they, bestow upon each other feathers from their own heads, which I, I find to be a really beautiful ritual. And to think that in her quarters aboard the Wayfarer, Sissix has a, a wall of feathers. And I think to myself, okay, how whose feathers would I have? Or who who would I have given a feather to if, if I were part of that ritual? Uh, it's a, a really wonderful way for us to kind of imagine the ripple effects of giving. Kizzy points out that it's actually like a, a pretty important life goal for Andrisks to have a lot of feathers to show how many people they've touched, not in an acquisitive way, but in a they part they value connectedness. And clearly they're they're not foolproof. They're not a hundred percent. They're still hypocritical like the rest of sapiens because this woman is on the outskirts of society. But that part of their central identity is that we are people who are in touch with one another. We are connected to one another. I also appreciate that the dedication in this book is for my family, Hatch and Feather. So (laughs) Becky Chambers has kind of brought in this idea of found family, which I know is certainly important in, in queer culture and other people who feel who are unfortunately marginalized in our society, that you are able to build a family with those you trust, with those you love, with those who have had an impact in your life. And that's kind of how the Feather families work in Andrisk society. And the crew of the Wayfarer is a found family or a Feather family. So let's talk about Ashby and his secret then, because if they all, uh, they all know about each other, but Ashby's keeping pay a secret because for the Eluans, they have this cultural taboo of uh, coupling outside of their species. And we'll learn a little bit more about that in the next book about why, maybe why where it comes from at the very least, if not why it still exists the way it is. Basically, it's very hard for Eluans to have, to have children. Ashby is torn because he's a pacifist and he knows that pay, while not a frontline soldier is helping the war effort of the Aluans and then is and then thinks Ashby thinks but war is bad but the Rosk that they're fighting are literally like indiscriminate killers for Ashby and Pei he knows that if humans started fighting that they can't stop that it's just something you know if he knows from history that mm-hmm. human war just ha- just keeps going there's no way to stop it uh and the Exodans were pacifists out of a need for survival on mm-hmm. this long haul ship. If you start having conflicts, it's not going to work. Violent. Yeah. If you start using violence to violent, solve your conflicts. Violent conflicts. Sorry. Yeah. It is interesting to have them exploring this ethical conversation where Ashby is like, basically, he would never pick up a gun. And yet he's glad that Pei is alive and not the Rosk who tried to kill her. And he says that, you know, you're still a good woman. Like you might have to do things, but your heart is still good, essentially. And that's where he goes into that. Basically, the human heart gets corrupted through violence, but the Eloans are more mature is the word he uses as a species. They're able to do what he sees as kind of right and inevitable. But you see him struggling like it is right. It is inevitable. 
but I couldn't do it. I feel this like, you know, anger in my heart that could take over, but you're able to somehow maintain your good heart. And either way, I'm glad you're here to be with me, you know, in this hotel eating fish eggs together or whatnot, whatever they, they get up to. Uh, and Pei, uh, I don't know if we're going to get to the galaxy in the ground within, but Pei is the main character in that book. Uh, so be, uh, we may or may not get all the way to there uh, reading Becky Chambers in the podcast. But uh, if you get interested in these books, you can learn a lot more about Pei in that book. Um, all right. Enjoy uh, reading it from yeah. your local bookstore. Yeah. Anything else you want to talk about about Port Coriel? I just love the tableau of the Andrisk, the two humans, and the Harmargian talking about soap. Talking about soap, yeah. Rose, Rosemary's kind of interspecies training allows her to see that tableau for what it is, which is kind of amazing. And I think if um, if I had gone to part, Port Coriol, I may have needed a breathing mask because I have a very sensitive nose for a human, but I also would love it like Ashby. We have another element of the cultural sensitivity with the lemon scented cleaner, oh, uh, yeah. which uh, Andrisks use a citrus plant to anoint their dead. So whenever they buy the lemon scented cleaner, it makes Sissix think about death. So they yep. buy the they buy the fragrance free. I just think that's a good good choice in general. What are we reading next time on the podcast? Next time on the podcast, we'll be reading the chapters The Wayne and Intro to Hamargian Colonial History. <laughs> Happy reading. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast for Nerdy Christians. Please give us a rating and review on your podcast app of choice so others can discover us too. You can find us at nerdychristians.com or on social media, facebook.com slash nerdychristians, and on Twitter at nerdychristians, where I occasionally tweet bad memes. You can find Adam on Twitter at RevAdamThomas or on his website, adamthomas.net. Planar Steel, sequel to last year's Vampire Miss, will be out soon, where you too can find out what happens to the mental health of a member of local law enforcement when you fill his house full of identical gnomes. And as always, you can find both of us right here on the next episode of the podcast for Nerdy Christians, where faith meets fandom. May God, who creates us in our strength and weakness, bless you and keep you. May Jesus, who empties himself for the sake of those he loves, guard and strengthen you. May the Holy Spirit, who works among us to bring goodness into the world, guide and inspire you. And with God's help, we can do this all day. Amen. <laughs>